Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you for tuning in. And as ever, we have got such a lot to cram in in our time together. It's very interesting. There are nearly always, to be honest, when I contemplate what I'm going to be reflecting on in our time together, there is always two or three kind of options. And like writing columns, actually, you know, there was a sort of agony, even when I was doing it twice a week, sometimes three times a week, what was going to be the choice. I was very tempted to reflect and delve deep on the labour issue of the £28 billion for its green recovery programme and the wider issue of tax and spend. And we will definitely, as a cooperative, need to return to that very, very soon, perhaps uh, next week. We need also, and there's some questions about it when we come to the questions, reflect a bit on foreign policy and um, Ukraine and the Middle East and, of course, the potential of the Trump presidency in November. So much happening. But if it's okay with all of you, I'm going to reflect a bit about the attempted coup, the embryonic coup against Sunak, because insurrections, well, I find them fascinating and they are complex and give me the space to do a bit of contextualizing about insurrections and when they are effective and when they are not, as well as looking at the specifics of this one. And so that's what I'm going to do. Then we will turn to your brilliant questions. There are more suggestions about uh, what Labour's slogan should be at the next election. We have another barometer figure a Tory, who uh, voted Tory last time, what are they going to do this time? Uh, part of our focus group, we've got uh, all kinds of fascinating questions, say foreign policy uh, comes up, um, more about the contrast with 1997. Uh, I kind of reflected on some of the mythologies of 1997 in the podcast a week ago. It's really interesting how the recent past, even those who lived through it and reported it actually, or analysed it as journalists, or were part of the project, changed the way it was at the time. Not deliberately, but uh, the recent past becomes something else very quickly. And um, last week, for those of you who missed it, and new listeners, new subscribers, and by the way, please spread the word, do subscribe, and then it just arrives, this podcast. And if you can, do subscribe to Patreon, because then you get a real range of bonus podcasts and live events and so on. Um, yeah, I was kind of looking at last week how one of the unfair criticisms of Keir Starmer, there are some that are fair, but one of the unfair ones is that, oh, compared to Tony Blair in 97, he's not as clear about what he would do in government and voters had a great sense of exciting mission with New Labour and I highlighted some of the areas, some of the biggest policy areas raging in 97. Tony Blair was deliberately and indeed wisely evasive. Sometimes evasiveness is the right cause, even if it leads to trouble once you are in government, as it can often do. Um, anyway, we will return to some of your brilliant reflections shortly. But now this coup against uh, Sunak. And there are some obvious issues about it, the characters involved, which we'll come to in a moment. 
but I was trying to think what it reminded me of. Some have cited the um, attempted coup against Gordon Brown in the January of 2010, a very cold day during Prime Minister's questions in January 2010, Jeff Hoon and Patricia Hewitt began a coup which they hoped would end with David Miliband in number 10. And by the end of the day, it had petered out totally. It was pathetic. It was another reminder that all those who had kind of flourished under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown were not fully developed as politicians because Blair and Brown and their entourages kind of took all the key decisions. And so the rest of them just had to work out whether they followed Blair or Brown or whatever, but they weren't fully developed politically. It was a hopeless coup. Now, this one, I think, is probably going to be hopeless, but is slightly different in that it hasn't petered out. It hasn't generated momentum, but it's still there. It is not the case. I remember going on the TV the evening after the attempted, the final attempted coup against Brown, there were lots, all of them insane and irrational, and placing too much faith in David Miliband uh, as someone who would lead the coup into number 10. And none of it, and Brown was sorting out the financial crash while a lot of these coups were going on. It was all mad and part of this sort of bizarre, unfinished in some respects, kind of. Um, loathing of those two camps, the Blair and Brown camps. But anyway, it it was gone. This one hasn't gone against Sunak. So the parallel doesn't quite work. Um, in a way, it reminded me of um, the embryonic attempts to remove Michael Foote as Labour leader in the build-up to the 83 election campaign. Because to get any sense of parallel with what's happening with Sunak and his dissenters, you have to find an equivalent in an election year. That's what makes the uh, kind of parallel quite uh, interesting. And now it's not precise again, because Michael Foote was leader of the opposition in 83, Sunak is prime minister. But Otherwise, uh, there are similarities. Labour in 83, miles behind in the opinion polls. And uh, the Tories, miles behind in the opinion polls now. The clock ticking towards a general election. And a key by-election in February 1983 made Michael Foote incredibly precarious. And there are by-elections taking place uh, in now, two in February, which many Tory MPs assume they're going to lose. Tory held seats, they're going to lose, which will reinforce the sense of doom in the current Conservative Parliamentary Party. And yet, uh, in spite of the, the one in February 1983 was Bermondsey, extraordinary dark by-election, where Peter Tatchell was the Labour candidate, um, although Michael Foote initially had tried to stop Tatchell from becoming the candidate. In the end, he had to accept it. 
and uh, Tatchell stood. It was a famous by-election because it was very... Uh, it was uh, someone has tried to write a film or script about it, and it would be a brilliant TV drama. It was very homophobic. Um, Tatchell uh, had not come out as gay when he was Labour candidate, but there were all kinds of insinuations that he was. And the winner was Simon Hughes, who had emerged later, was also gay. Um, so and and there were rumours actually about some of the anti-Tatchell Labour Party members being gay. I mean, it was a, but it was an incredible. It was a cold January and February campaign, and Labour. It was a safe Labour seat, uh, Bermondsey, and the Liberals won it. It was at the sort of period where the SDP Liberal Alliance was at its height, and Simon Hughes, a Liberal, won it. After that, there was all sorts of talk amongst Labour MPs or some of them that Michael Foote should be removed to be replaced by Dennis Healy, who had become runner-up in the 1980 leadership contest. Uh, Michael Foote was being slaughtered by the Tory newspapers. Dennis Healy much more admired by those papers. Um, and seemingly more robust as a figure, although it has to be said that Michael Foote, although he looked frail by 1983, was actually more energetic in some respects than Margaret Thatcher, but that's another story. And there were Labour MPs like Gerald Kaufman manoeuvring openly to replace Foote with Dennis Healy in the same way that some Tories now, a few anyway, are plotting openly to remove Sunak. Why did it not happen in 83? And why do I think it won't happen now with Sunak? Um, there was one obvious reason, that there was another dramatic by-election in the spring of 1983 in Darlington, where the assumption was there would be a repeat of Bermondsey, a Labour-held seat, Darlington, and uh, the SDP then fielded a candidate. High excitement, everyone in Darlington campaigning, all the shadow cabinet, the Labour shadow cabinet, all the SDP up there the whole time. And Labour kept the seat. It had a very good local candidate, Ozzy O'Brien, and he, he won. Didn't last very long. The Tories won it at the general election. And if Labour had lost, the expectation was that the move against Michael Foote would intensify. Um, so arguably, Darlington is a by-election of great significance. But I don't think that is the reason why Michael Foote survived any attempt to remove him in spite of dire opinion polls warning of a Labour defeat on a colossal scale, which of course then happened in the summer of 1983. And the reason it didn't is because the potential rebels who wanted him out for Dennis Healy would not have found a way of uniting a Labour Party, a parliamentary Labour Party, a Labour Party in the country around the leadership of an alternative, in that case, Healy, even close to an election. Healy was seen by many largely unfairly, as the chancellor that had destroyed that Labour government, which 
left power in 79, just then a few years earlier. And if there had been an attempt to remove Michael Foote, frankly, all hell would have broken loose in parts of the Labour Party. The left of the Labour Party, though they weren't thrilled with Michael Foote by then, uh, would have been up in arms at the elevation of the, the figure they saw as far too right wing. Uh, it was a divided party. And divided parties removing a leader without a clear sense of a unifying figure to succeed the current leader gets into deep, deep trouble. It is rarely a solution to a divided party to dump a leader. It just reinforces the divisions and sense of dysfunctionality within a party. And that, it seems to me, applies now to the Tories. Uh, they pop up these uh, kind of insurrectionary figures and say things like, Sunak is leading us to a wipeout at the general election, and what we need is X, Y, and Z. And if they found a leader who would adopt X, Y, and Z, you know, breaking international law over Rwanda, uh, breaking incidentally probably domestic laws as well uh, in relation to Rwanda. You should read the uh, House of Lords debates about that Rwanda policy, you know, all those kind of legal experts in the House of Lords utterly destroying uh, the bill as it currently stands. So, you know, there are enough Tory MPs alarmed at breaking law, not that many of them, but enough for if there were to be an attempt to remove Sunak, who would be up in arms. Up in arms months to go before a general election. So a divided party cannot find an alternative leader that would not fuel the divisions that in themselves are leading the Tories to their electoral doom. There is no solution brought about by the removal of one leader and replaced with another. In this case, they don't even have a credible alternative. Dennis Healy was mightily credible, even though in 83, he was a divisive figure within the Labour Party. Here was someone who had been Defence Secretary for six years, Chancellor of the Exchequer for five years, and still absolutely as robust as he was in that period. Uh, and even then, they didn't do it. And here, people talk about Kemi Badnock. She's been a cabinet minister for five minutes. No one really knows who she is and what she thinks beyond a few kind of right-wing kind of libertarian statements every now and then, a hint of expediency in some areas every now and again, and that's more or less it. Um, and the idea that she would be the great saviour of these dissenters um, is a kind of fantasy. Even the dissenters won't know for sure. And there is another uh, problem too with the attempted coup, and that is those involved. The moment I heard that Lord Frosty Frost was fronting this attempted uh, coup, uh, he was the one who fronted that opinion poll which predicted a landslide Labour majority. Uh, I knew they were in trouble. Uh, there is, uh, th th we've talked about this 
many times that there is a book to be done on Lord Frosty Frost, not because he is inherently interesting, he's stupid, um, but that such a non-elected mediocrity should be the sole figure really responsible for negotiating Brexit, unscrutinized by anybody, because Johnson didn't follow the detail, the cabinet never discussed it, the Labour Party pretended it wasn't happening, and there he was doing it. And now here he is, you know, he already kind of undermined Johnson by resigning when he realized he couldn't face the practical consequences of his own Brexit deal when he was in charge of Brexit in the cabinet. And now he is here he is again leading a coup um, against Sunak. I mean, it is extraordinary. Sort of he is the Inspector Clouseau of British politics, but not accountable to anybody, shouldn't be in the House of Lords. Johnson, again, a t total misjudge of character. He can't read character Johnson, rewarding all kinds of dodgy people. But anyway, he's leading it. So, so it's, it's, it's doomed probably on that basis alone that you've got an idiot uh, trying to stir the waves. There are always wild cards, though. It is the case that Sunak will lose those by-elections. There is no equivalent of the Darlington by-election that helped to save Michael Foote. I, I, I argue he would have been saved anyway. But there isn't a by-election the Tories are going to win to boost Sunak. So it's hard to see where Sunak gets his kind of protective shield from in the coming months. The May elections, I think, will be a disaster for the Tories as well. But that clock is ticking. Once the May local elections are out of the way, everybody will be looking at the general election. And I cannot see this bunch of people triggering a coup against Sunak that works because of these deeper issues. They can utter simplistic things like, why don't we cut taxes? Why don't we kick people out of the country, even if it breaks laws? Um, uh, getting a leader to do that and to unite a party around such a program as the clock ticks towards an election is just inconceivable. So I, I don't think it's going to happen. As I say, the only doubting factor I have in that is that they are going to get monthly reminders of how unpopular they are as a party and a, as a party under Sunak. But the idea there is an alternative route that addresses that issue before the election is one of the many fantasies of uh, shallow fantasies, actually, of the insurrectionary tendency in the Tory party, which is always around these days. Uh, the Tory party has become the party where insurrection and dissent are fashionable and constant. But I think it will be Sunak who leads the Conservatives into the general election which is probably the worst news Sunak has had for many months, because as those of you who go to the live shows know, our predictions in the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative are always wrong. But actually, mine are, not yours, because we're going over to your brilliant uh, questions now.
If you want to join in our never-ending discussion, the email address is steverick14 at icloud.com. And if you want to subscribe to the Patreon version of Rock and Roll Politics uh, to delve even deeper uh, and to support the podcast and the brilliant uh, team who helped put this podcast together, uh, yeah, do sign up to Patreon. The link to that is uh, on the blurb for the podcast. And it won't break the bank. It really won't. Uh, but it's, it's great. And we uh, all will be getting together live soon, as well as the bonus podcasts. The current one, looking back at my interviews from 1997, the build-up to that election and what it tells us about then and now. And I'm looking at one I did with Peter Mandelson in 19, January 1997, exactly the same period as we're in now. And now, over to all of you. And we're going to begin, if it's all right with you, uh, with Louise Burton. And Louise says, a long-time listener and first-time writer to the cooperative. Absolutely love the podcast. Oh, thank you, uh, Louise. Uh, I flirted with others, but you, and then Louise mentions one other, which you need bother with, uh, give the depth and context that we need in these strange, dark times. Well, that's thank you, Louise. That is the kind of idea. These are strange and dark times. And we all need to get together to make sense of them. Uh, they don't just happen by chance that we're in this dark, weird period. Um, oh, in terms of services that I can offer the cooperative, I'm a digital producer specializing in global events, auto shows, opening ceremonies, expos. So when the cooperative takes over running the country, I can be on hand for the gala opening. Well, that's it. I think there is a, if there is a need for a new political party, um, if Labour fail... Uh, in, in power, and we know about the state of the Tory party, uh, it's us. We're ready-made as a political party. So so I think, Louise, uh, we might well need your services. Um, and Louise is wondering about those uh, Tory voters who um, are disillusioned with the Tories but haven't uh, decided quite what to do about that disillusionment, some of whom are our barometer voters uh, who listen to the Rock and Roll Politics podcast and have written in, people like uh, Stuart, who gave us an update last week, and others. Now, uh, Louise's view is you could be forgiven for Thatcher, I won't, but some might, Major perhaps, uh, even the entitled but empty Cameron, but Johnson, no, it was obvious to anyone even if you shut your eyes while screaming la la la, that he was a ruinous, lie, lying, preapic baboon. Um, yeah, I think that's a perfectly kind of fair, nuanced summary, uh, Louise. Old school Tories like Max Hastings could not have been clearer with their warnings. I'd like these ex-Tories to name one thing wrong with this country that wasn't directly caused or made infinitely worse by Tory policies in recent years years. And she wonders about whether or they should, she thinks they should vote tactically to uh, remove this uh, long-serving governing uh, party and wonders why some of them are reluctant to do so. I think there's going to be a lot of tactical voting 
Louise. I think, and so do Tory MPs, who are terrified by the consequences of such tactical voting. But we'll see. But it is interesting in opinion polls, uh, focus groups, there was one, that, that silly uh, Laura Koonsberg program, silly in the sense, as you know, my view is they cram too much in and each interview lasts no more than about six minutes, not long enough for a Sunday morning program. But they had a focus group on, which didn't show great enthusiasm for Labour. But if you look at the polls more widely, um, it does suggest there is a switch going on of a quite profound uh, intensity. But let's see. Um, anyway, you know this thing that we're doing, uh, triggered by Christian Walmart at the last live show at uh, King's Place, what should Labour's slogan be for the election? Uh, and I, I, I'm useless to that kind of, I couldn't do it. But Louise, Louise has got some good ones. Rebuild, revive, renew. Uh, a slogan that allows Labour to tell stories about its missions and plans. Um, yeah, and that's positive, and it has a certain poetic charm. Uh, these, these are good. As I said last week, I hope Labour aren't spending a fortune getting some advertising agency to come up with a slogan. Uh, they, they can get a load for nothing from us lot, although I think we'll charge them, um, you know, We'll charge them a lot, but about half what they'll pay an advertising agency. Paul Snowden from Penrith and Cumbria, he's got Let's Get Britain Working Again. That has a certain um, positive ring, you know, uh, let's get going kind of thing. And we've got one from Robin, uh, no surname, but Steve, I've not emailed before, but I've been listening since lockdown. Like many of the cooperative, I started listening on my daily walks and runs and when doing the gardening. Yeah, that's it. It's mixing profit with pleasure. I don't know what the pleasure bit is, the podcast or the running and walking and gardening, uh, or what the profit is, actually. Um, anyway, uh, Robin said, I used to work for a politician, but I'm much better suited to my current career in tech. Uh, I'm not sure what software development needs the cooperative has, but my services are available. Well, we'll be in touch on that front too, Robin. I mean, we, we, we could run a country, a slot, with the services available. Anyway, I have a humble suggestion for Labour's election slogan, which I thought of on the tube today. Time to shape up. I'm not sure that will work, uh, Robin. Um, uh, I, I, he gives examples of why it, it might, uh, Starmer shaping up to be a prime minister, etc., etc. Uh, constructive relations with the UP, U, EU. But it sounds uh, too punitive, Robin, time to shape up. It implies voters haven't done their best and they've got to get their act together. And voters never like being told off. They like telling off politicians, but you can't do anything. Uh, that implies you're telling off the voters for not rising to the occasion. Now, I know that's not what you're saying, Robin, but there's a risk in that slogan of voters saying, bloody hell, is that what they think of us? Right, you bastards. I'm sticking with the Tories. Okay, over to Matthew Ryan, this slogan thing. Uh, I was at King's Place when Christian Walmart asked you about an election-winning slogan, and I've enjoyed listening to other suggestions sent in by the cooperative. May I hum humbly offer one or two? Let us face the future together. Uh, yes, good one. Uh, not dissimilar to 45, uh, Matthew informs us. Um, Britain will win with Labour, used successfully by Harold Wilson in 74. 
Wilson, who was dismissed as old and knackered by 74, was actually fairly agile and sharp in uh, the February and October 74 elections. And let's not forget, won a referendum on Europe in 75. So this is quite interesting. Let's get Britain working again. Um, Yeah, some good good ones. If a direct lift from a previous one, I'm not quite sure about, uh, Matthew. And I love listening to your podcast. Oh, thank you very much. Matthew says, I hope you won't be too busy in the election year. We're all going to be busy, Matthew, making sense of it all in this election year. Thank you very much. Um, Now, this is very interesting from Sean Farrell, who uh, emailed me with some brilliant other uh, references to articles and so on uh, over the last uh, week or so. Now, someone last week came up with what I thought was quite a clever idea uh, with just one word, together as a slogan. I think I mentioned as well, Will Hutton is uh, writing a book about the we society, where it's partly about, it's partly it's about a lot of things, but it's, it, together is a kind of nice uh, summary. Um, <laughs> Sean points out, it was the name of a chaotic 1970s socialist commune in the Swedish film of the same name. Right, that's enough. I think we we can't go near that one. And it was the name of an infamous Northern Rock mortgage that allowed people to borrow up to 125% of the value of the property they were buying. This is dangerous terrain. Uh, Together, it sounded so cool, but uh, the Swedish socialist commune mocked in a film and a dodgy mortgage offer. He thinks Labour Works for You is almost... um, Beatable. Um, it even turns around the Tory slogan in 1979. That, of course, that famous slogan, "Labour isn't working." Yeah, I mean, these are all very interesting. Just shows a few words. It, it, it is doable. It's just not something I can do. Okay, over to uh, our, our, our white van driver Andy, who incidentally is coming live to the King's Place show on March the 26th. Uh, I haven't met Andy, but I will there. Uh, And you must all come along. I forgot to mention it. March the 26th. If Andy can make it, we can all make it. So Andy says, we in the cooperative and most progressives are united in our opposition to the simplistic slogans uh, of the far right regarding immigration. This is, by the way, a problem with those trying to remove Sunak. Uh, it's, It's easy to assert things like, right, we've got to deal with the boats, and if it means breaking the law, so be it. But it's simplistic. And when simplistic slogans are tested by reality, these people run a thousand miles, as Lord Frosty Frost did when he was given Brexit responsibilities in the cabinet. He was gone within months. But Andy raises the key question, what do we do about border control and assimilation in what could become an era of biblical migration? And that's a good way of putting it. My view is that the UK is desperately short of workers and most immigrants are eager to work. So what's the problem? But is this too simplistic in its own way? And if not, who's going to stand up and say it? Yeah, it's, it's a brilliant point. And it is absolutely right that there is an argument to be made that the biggest cause of Britain's economic crisis and sluggish economic performance is shortage of labour. And incidentally, also, that the problem with the NHS and other public services 
And yet at the same time, we're sort of saying, oh, lock the borders up, don't let anyone in. Um, and you, you've got even Labour doing this mythological, oh, we're going, it's going to be for British workers. We want British workers to fill these posts, as if you can train them up in 10 seconds to become nurses. And, you know, the service industry desperately needs people now. And yet we're turning them away. Can there be a grown-up de debate about this issue of it's about control, it's partly about prejudice, it's partly about this sense of being overwhelmed? Um, can we have a grown-up debate? Uh, possibly. Uh, it's very difficult with the British media as it currently stands. But I think... One of the things, if there is a Labour government, they need to do is look at ways in which other countries have encouraged more grown-up debate. Ireland is one example, before referendums and so on. And, and see if we can, and see whether you can just say, look, we are in control. Uh, we are making a decision that uh, we need a certain number of workers for this, this, and this. And we uh, think that's a good thing. But at the moment, the government's not even doing that because, you know, it's sort of making it impossible for students to come and all the rest of it. It's We're in a mad situation at the moment. But it, I, I think in a pre-election period, there is no hope of a grown-up debate. It always used to amuse me at the BBC. They used to spend you know, hundreds of staff working on the bloody election campaign and, and you know, preparing forward planning for years. I know one who wrote a PhD while supposedly forward planning had so much spare time. But actually, the debate is not elevated during an election campaign. Afterwards, there is some space, but not before. Um, we're, we're stuck on this sort of, you know, tax and spend, mad terrain, uh, and, and control the borders, mad terrain. Thank you, Andy. See you March the 26th at King's Place. Over now to France, Rob in the Charente. Uh, I hope you're well and can assure you that I've been following everything that you and the cooperative have been saying. I really enjoy listening while I'm out on my daily country dog walks. You know what? So many of you listen whilst dog walking. I'm thinking of getting a dog. I feel a bit left out. I've noted the conservative attacks on Keir Starmer have become specific and personal, not least from Sunak at PMQs. Um, do negative political characterization ever have the desired effect? Um, it's an interesting question. And in fairness, Keir Starmer is becoming really personal about Sunak. And some people detect dog whistling about Sunak and whether he understands Britain and so on. And I'm afraid I think these attacks, not the ones in Prime Minister's Questions, most people don't watch Prime Minister's Questions, uh, but media attacks on a character can have an impact Newspapers destroyed Neil Kinnock. It's interesting now, Neil Kinnock is being interviewed as an elder statesman. He's back doing interviews after the... T uh, he's, he's really sad about the death of uh, Glenys, uh, and, uh, obviously, but he cared for her for quite a long time. He's now out and about giving interviews. Um, but they slaughtered him. And in fairness, it's unusual. It's mainly Labour leaders they go for, but they, they sort of destroyed Major. Uh, the the newspapers now major is seen as this great elder states figure 
so I'm afraid personal attacks in newspapers do work and influence the BBC and so on. Um, PMQs, I wonder. I wonder at Prime's questions whether uh, people take note. I'll tell you who do take note, the MPs. If Sunak has a bad Prime Minister's questions, it reinforces this sense that he's not up to the job. And he's not very good at Prime Minister's questions. Uh, Keir Starmer's not brilliant. Uh, he's not a Wilson or a Blair. But Sunak's really bad at them, in my view, and, and, and in the view of Tory MPs. But as I said earlier, I think he's going to lead them into the election. Uh, Bob Tyndall. Uh, yeah, this is part of our focus group of voters. Uh, I say one to add to the voting intentions of former Tory voters in the next election. My 95-year-old mother-in-law will vote Labour at the next election. She is almost by instinct a natural Tory voter and a consistent voter for the party. Her favourite paper is the Daily Mail. She was, until more recently, a great fan of Jacob Rees-Mogg, but the mask has slipped, and he's not the good-mannered toff she thought he was. She didn't like Boris Johnson because of his loose morals, partygate and the like, but she likes Keir Starmer, and her attended Labour vote only has one president, 1997. Well, thank you, Bob. That is really interesting because, you know, it could be we're in a 1997-style result. Could be. It would need a much bigger swing. It would be sensational and historic. I've said many times this is not 1997 in terms of context, economics, politics, the mood of the electorate has changed, but perhaps the result will be if your mother is anything to go by. So keep us informed, Bob, that your mother uh, is still thinking along those lines as we move up to the election. Henry writes in about this thing. I'm, I'm going to reflect more on it, Henry. We're running out of time, so if it's okay. I'll just read your your point about whether you know that we're now hearing people might be conscripted to fight in a war. Um, and I, he says also, Henry, do you think we're getting too blasé about nuclear weapons? It worries me that we casually talk about wars with Russia and China without anticipating that they could literally mean the destruction of the world. As this has got to be a podcast soon, so I want us, I mean, we all need to reflect on this. Henry's right that it's becoming almost sort of casual now. You know, people say things like, well, of course, Russia's got to be defeated. And if China goes in uh, to Taiwan, uh, you know, we, you, we will go for China. These people have got n nuclear weapons wherever you turn. Uh, we're at a deeply dangerous place. He adds, actually, I totally agree about supporting Ukraine, but when people like Ben Wallace start talking about uh, the Crimea or getting rid of Putin, I'm not sure they are really thinking about what getting rid of another nuclear power's government actually means. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I say we need to reflect more on this. Uh, foreign policy is going to be huge for the next government. I suspect, well, not suspect, I know. Uh, and, and, and incoming prime ministers are very inexperienced in foreign affairs, mostly. Anthony Eden being an exception. Of course, foreign affairs brought him down too. So it's uh, a chapter in my book on turning points in modern Britain. Uh, Suez is, uh, in some ways, I think, one of the most interesting. Uh, Emma Burnell, who is a brilliant writer on politics, wrote to me about lots of things, but um, 
she she points out this thing about how 97 is mythologized. Uh, what I find particularly interesting, uh, she watched recently a repeat of the 1970, 1997 election TV coverage on the BBC, it was the succession of Tory spinners responding to the result in 97, with lines along the same as we're currently hearing from Tory MPs and supporters, that there was no enthusiasm for Labour. I had completely forgotten that that was a trope then, and it seems those who think it might be successful again have forgotten it too. Yeah, the enthusiasm was tangible on the night of 97. But in a way, that enthusiasm, and there will be this time, the, the sense of change being so exciting. Um, but sometimes, certainly in 97, you know, a new day has dawned, has it not? You know, Tony Blair at the Royal Festival Hall in the early hours of that morning. It did for a time disguise the sort of cautious incrementalism of the manifesto. Uh, right, where are we? We've got we've been, so many questions. I'm sorry if I don't get to yours. Uh, Tony Couchman writes, uh, in just about all your excellent podcasts, oh, thank you, you refer one way or another to how the Tory newspapers hold a kosh over Labour and the BBC. Are the non-dom taxpaying billionaire barons the elephants in the room? Um, yeah, in some ways they are. Um, I think the newspapers remain powerful in uh, setting agendas. Uh, they will be confused at the moment, and we can see this in lots of examples. The Telegraph is part of the attempt to destabilise Sunak rather than cheering him to the rafters as the next election comes up. The Sun doesn't quite know what to do. Most of its readers uh, want to back Labour. Usually by now, they're absolutely tearing into a Labour leadership. Um, they are equivocating a bit. So it's interesting. Um, but I think they are powerful. I think it would be easier for Labour to instigate a grown-up debate about tax and spend if it wasn't for some of these newspapers being such powerful mediating forces. Uh, people don't watch politics in the raw. They do it via the media. So I think they do. But uh, I'll reflect on it at greater length at some point, Tony, as you suggest. Uh, Martin Jones from Birmingham, he thinks, you know, this thing about caution in the build-up to the election and what happens afterwards. He predicts uh, Labour will be more daring sooner than they were in 97, because Starmer knows Labour could win a second term if uh, he wins with a big majority. But remember, Tony Blair had a huge majority while remaining cautious in his first term. Uh, Starmer has experience of running a massive organisation and so won't be overwhelmed by the scale of governing. I think it is a huge advantage that he he ran the uh, DP, well, he was Director of Public Prosecutions. And he, uh, Martin points out that Sue Gray will be there as well, someone who has experience of Whitehall at the most senior uh, levels. Um, they're all good reasons to assume that, but I can tell you the mountainous challenges are uh, steeper by miles than in 1997, and the patience of the electorate is not as great as it was in 97. I say that because the restiveness we know about. They voted for Brexit, a huge risky change. Uh, the SNP soared in Scotland. These are all symptoms of a restive electorate. Um, the rise of Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party. 
the support for Johnson. This is restiveness, impatience, demanding electorate. So it's going to be quite a ride, which we will be here, of course, to make sense of. Now, I think we better stop there, if that's all right with all of you. Sorry if I didn't come to your questions. Keep them coming in. And let's all stick together to make sense of it all, whatever we're doing, uh, what other other pleasures we're having as we mix profit with pleasure. Thanks so much for listening. Do subscribe. If you could leave a review, that would be great. But only if you love it, um, that would be really great. And spread the word about the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative podcast so we are joined by others. Okay, see you all soon. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye.